0: So today we are in uh, the beginning of the story now of David as the ruler of God's people. We've come through the book of 1 Samuel, we're getting into 2 Samuel, now it's the end of the Saul and David story, the beginning of the David story. And really 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a pretty key chapter in our Bibles. That is the chapter in which God establishes a covenant with David. What's a covenant well, it's different than any sort of interaction that we as humans have. We, we are very used to the transactional idea of, of uh, contracts. Okay? That's kind of what we're more familiar with. So when you go sign a contract to buy that first home, you are saying, if you, then I. right? If you uh, deliver this house in the condition that it is right now, I will pay you this amount that we've agreed to. And so it's a transactional arrangement. When you sign a contract for a job at work, there's a a contract that you enter into there. If you, then I, if you will work the number of hours and do the tasks spelled out in your job description, I will pay you X amount of dollars per hour or per pay period. And so there's a contract that we're used to. A covenant is different than that. In fact, the covenant we're going to see with King David, uh, between God and King David, is a particular kind of covenant that is a royal decree where the the sovereign, the king, the ruler, goes to the little minion, peon, nobody, and says, I, because I am a beneficent ruler and king, am going to give you this, not based on something that you've done, not based on your deservingness, but because I'm an awesome king and i'm doing that for you this is the kind of covenant that we're going to see god establish with david here in second samuel chapter seven so a covenant is more like a promise Um, the closest example of that we have of this is at a wedding ceremony where there's two people that make some pledges to one another not really dependent on anything that that other person says or does, right? So they, they both mutually enter into that sort of a covenant relationship. But there's some words in a wedding ceremony that are very covenant in, in focus. So, you know, we say, I'm going to stick with you. I'm, I'm forsaking all others to cleave to you only. And what's the scope of that? Well, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part those are some powerful words unfortunately we see that a lot of people say that on their wedding day and don't follow through right so you know once it gets uh, to the poorer to the worse to the sicker um, they go you know till death is a long time Um, maybe I'm not really willing to commit to what I had committed to on the wedding day thankfully God keeps his promises Thankfully, when God establishes a covenant, it's a binding covenant because it's based on his character and his heart. So we're going to be looking at this covenant that God establishes with David. This isn't the first covenant that we come across in God's word. There's been a couple of other covenants that God has established. The one that's most relevant to the covenant with David is the covenant that God established with Abraham. That is, you can read it back in your uh, Bibles in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 12, chapter 15, kind of repeated in some other chapters throughout Genesis. But there again, it's God saying, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And so he makes some promises and some covenant uh, blessings to, Dave, or to Abraham that are really in line with his heart to David as well. Some, some echoes of that covenant with Abraham that we'll see in the Davidic covenant. As we go to this story, um, I think it's, it's important to think through what, what does it mean that we have a king who makes promises to us, to people like Abraham and David. And as we celebrate communion today, we're going to look at some verses in the New Testament that Jesus says this is a new covenant in my blood. And so communion is really a a remembrance of the covenant that our king has irrevocably made with us promises that he guarantees to deliver on. And this is a really radically different way of looking at the human interaction with the divine than what you'll see in any man-made religion anywhere in the world. So any man-made religion, it goes like this. It starts with human action and then it proceeds to a divine response. So you think about it, right? So if there's a bunch of spirits, you know, if it's, if it's animism, and there's evil spirits and good spirits, and this, tr- this particular tree has an evil spirit, and then this, there's this little deity of this river or this region. Well, what do you do as humans? Well, you have to take action to appease the spirit so that they, the divine, the, the spirit, gives a good response and that you get a blessing. For that so you know maybe you've got to sacrifice something or you've got to go through certain works uh, in order to appease the spirits that exist all of the man-made religions really work like that they flow in that direction of human action and then divine response but what we're gonna see here with David the covenant that God makes with David and through Jesus more importantly it's actually the exact opposite where it's divine action and then human response okay and so that's really the, the gift that the reformers gave us back in the 1500s as they were looking at the state of the church at that time and they said, "Well, I think've we've, we've got this flipped around as they were reading their Bibles, and they were seeing, you know there's something different about a religion that is initiated by the maker of the universe and and dictated uh, the, the process from the mouth of our Creator God saying, This is how you as humans, as my creation, will interact with me, made in my image. There's a difference in this religion where God himself comes and dies in our place and takes our sins upon himself so that we can be cleansed and forgiven. And so the Reformers reminded us that it's all God's initiative, it's His action, and it's our response to that gift that He has given. We're going to see that very story played out here in 2 Samuel 7, as God makes a covenant with David, and then there is a response from David to this divine action. So before we get to chapter 7, just where have we been so far here in 2 Samuel? Well, we've seen David now as his kingdom is beginning, He's called by God a man after God's own heart. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, also in Acts 13. A man after God's heart. And so the question is, what does David's heart look like? What does it look like to have a heart that is like God's heart? We saw here in the the early chapters of 2 Samuel that despite the fact that Saul hunted him down and pursued him all along this time from when David was anointed king until he's actually taking that throne, David, who could legitimately look at Saul as an enemy, Saul and his family as an enemy, he didn't repay evil with evil. Instead, he repaid evil with good. Time and again, he mourned the death of Saul and his sons. He looked for opportunities to bless even these descendants of Saul. More than that, David, as we look at this heart after God, he waited for God's strength. There were a lot of contrasting stories here early in 2 Samuel where people took matters into their own hands, where they looked at the people around them as opportunities to achieve an end that they desired for themselves, using people. But not David. He waited for God's strength. He waited for God to uh, fight the battles for him. He wasn't like the Amalekite in chapter 1 who shows up with Saul's crown and his armlet and says, Hey, David, I killed him! Can you give me an important place in your kingdom now? He wasn't like Abner or Joab in chapters 2 and 3, the the commander of Saul's army and the commander of David's armies who were using people for their advantages and taking matters into their own hands. He wasn't like Ishbosheth's murderers in chapter 4. David, his, his actions toward others was very different from any of these other characters because he was trusting in God and waiting for his strength. Chapter 5, there's another story of David not only waiting for God, uh, for, for the strength that he needed, but also for direction. And in that, and in that chapter, there's a, uh, an occasion where he goes up against the Philistines, these, these enemies that we've seen all throughout the books of Samuel. And he prays, it says that he, David inquired of the Lord. Simple prayer, there in chapter 5, verse 19, he prays, God, shall I go up against the Philistines? Yes or no? And, and in that first prayer, God says, yes, go up. I've granted you victory. And he goes up into battle, and, and he wins. But just after that, there's a second battle with the Philistines. And again, David prays. And, it, and this time in verse 23, it says, And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. And then he gives instructions. You shall go around. This time, don't go up into battle. Sneak around from the back. And I think there's a lesson in that for us as well that when we go to the Lord, not just for our strength, but in those day to day decisions, we wake up and say, God, which way should I go today? The temptation would be to rely on our own experience, our own wisdom, and our own strength. After we've been granted victory one time because we prayed and asked God and He led us, to then not need to pray the next time. And say, I know what to do in this circumstance. Because I won against the Philistines last time, this is just how I do it. I settle into routine. I go in this direction. I don't even need to ask God anymore. But that wasn't David's practice. And as he came to him daily inquiring of the Lord, God was able to direct his steps each new day. And he never got to that place of trusting in his own experience, his own wisdom, his own feelings, his gut instincts. How often are we prone to doing just that? Maybe we inquired of the Lord back then, but today we know what to do. Been there, done that. And God delights in his people coming to him each day, inquiring of the Lord, submitting our ways to him. Really, that story fits into a lesson that God is teaching David about his sovereignty. Sovereign, a sovereign, that's a king-like word, right? It means that you're the one who has rule over an area. It's it's a kingly word. It's about a king in his kingdom. To say that God is sovereign is acknowledging that he is the king. And I think this is an area that we as Americans need to grow in our understanding of really our relationship with the God who initiates, the God who acts, and we react to his sovereignty. And so in chapter 6, there's a story now as David's Kingdom has been established. The Lord is establishing his kingdom. His power is consolidating. David is now the king not just of the southern area of Judah, but also of the northern region of Israel. And the ark of the covenant of God is coming to Jerusalem. And along the way, there's this difficult passage in 2 Samuel chapter 6 where, as that ark of the covenant of the Lord's presence is moving toward Jerusalem, It says in verse 6 of chapter 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. It seems reasonable, right? So, you know, picture this. It's the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It's the place that symbolically represents the presence of the living God. We saw back in 1 Samuel when Saul wanted to bring that Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into battle as kind of a good luck charm against the Philistines. God wasn't blessing that decision. Instead of actually inquiring of the Lord, Saul just wanted the power of the Lord, but without the presence of the Lord. But here now, the pre- you know, this, this Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is coming up into Jerusalem. The oxen stumble, and so Uzzah puts out his hand to steady that Ark. What happens? Verse 7, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Man, you and I, in our human reason, it reads something like that. That's a bit extreme. That's a bit harsh. God, couldn't you be a bit more understanding? Uzzah's just trying to be helpful, it was an error. He wasn't maliciously going out and sticking his hand on the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord where God's presence is. And if that's how you're feeling, you're in good company. That's how David himself felt. So what's David's reaction to that incident? Verse 8, And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. Verse 9, And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Three reactions from David to this incident with Uzzah and the ark of the covenant of the Lord. He was angry, he was afraid, and then he was not willing to invite the presence of the Lord to come to Jerusalem. And so a period of a, a couple of months pass while this the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is at a different house. It's at the house of Obed-Edom for three months. But we find out in verse 11 that the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household during that time. And there's something that God is teaching David through this about his sovereignty, about what he commands, about his plans and purposes. And even in the death of Uzzah, that whole incident and the emotions that David felt, it's an opportunity for David to re, for God to remind David that he's the covenant maker, that he's the one that fulfills his promises, that he's the one who is the holy God, that he's the one that directs us as to how we worship him, as to how we know him, as to how we approach him. And so David is learning this lesson, and as, as he's learning this lesson, we do see a change in his heart, moving from anger and fear and unwillingness to where, at the end of this story, let's read in verse 12 the, the reaction of David now as, as he hears about the blessing that's been on the house of Obed Edom. And he wants that blessing to come on him and his house and the entire kingdom of Israel. It was told, King David, verse 12, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. There's a heart change in David as he's becoming aware of who this God is. Who what that sovereignty of God really means, what the presence of the Lord is all about. There's a reverence for his holiness. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. You get that? So this is the the reverence with which David is now approaching God in his presence. Not angry, not fearful, not unwilling but with rejoicing and with reverence to the point that as that ark is progressing toward Jerusalem, every six steps, oop, stop, we've gone six steps, let's offer a sacrifice to the Lord right here. Let's take another six steps. Let's have another barbecue and and let that fragrant aroma rise up to God as we worship Him. So there's rejoicing and there's worship. And in verse 14, and David danced, before the Lord with all his might. Man, this should have been the call to worship from the worship team today, right? I mean, us Minnesotans and Canadians, I don't know. That, this is a stretch. You Coloradans, you got enough green chili in you. You should be able to tap a foot at least. Come on. And David is dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, a couple things with that. Number one, that's a priestly garment. So that's what a Levitical priest would wear to lead the people in ceremonial worship of the one true God. David's not a priest, he's a king. And yet he's a priest-like king. He's putting on these priestly garments and really it's, it's with the heart of Deuteronomy 17. We've read that a few times as we're looking at the story of David. That's way back in Israel's history when God gives some instructions. He says, someday you're going to want a king. Don't pick a king like the other nations have. Don't pick a king who goes after women and money and horses, which would be a warrior king. Instead, you need a priest-like king who will make a copy of this book of the law, carry it with him everywhere he goes, and lead my people in ceremonial worship of the one true God. David is really fitting that sort of a king, a man after God's own heart. The other thing about a and Ephod, it's not a very... Um, shall we say, modest garment. And that's going to come up a little bit later in the story. So David's wearing a linen ephod. He's dancing with all his might before the Lord in worship. And in verse 15, David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now that's a worship service right there. So David, in just that beginning of chapter 6, he's moved from fear, anger, unwillingness, As he encounters the presence of the living God and his commandments and his holiness to this place of uninhibited worship, making loud noises, dancing, leading the people in worship of the one true God. Now, his wife is not real happy about what's been transpiring here on the way to Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 6, you can read the story about his wife, Michael, who is Saul's daughter she's she's despising David as she sees this she's scorning him she's not a part of this she's she's not down there in the streets with all the other people worshiping as the ark of the covenant of of God is moving toward Jerusalem and once David gets home at the end of that day she's got a few words for him she she accuses him of being lewd in his behavior Oh, all the servant girls, they really like seeing you gyrating out there, David, in your immodest ephod. David's taking this in. And really, really, I hear in Michael's voice, she's saying, David, where is your fear of man? David, why are you so unconcerned about what the people around you are thinking and saying? And then you hear David's response. Michael, I wasn't dancing for you or for any of the servants. I was dancing before the Lord. And at the end, he says, Verse 21, David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I, I shall be held in honor. And then the, the final the final verse on Michael there at the end of chapter six. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, notice it doesn't say the wife of David, pretty significant. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And so there in that, it wasn't just a barrenness of the womb, it was really a barrenness of soul that we see in Michael, that she's looking at someone who is worshiping God with abandon. And instead of entering into that celebration and rejoicing and making Mary before the Lord, she responds with scorn and disdain. David really... There's a growing awareness that God has a plan for David's life and for the nation of Israel. I think that's the lesson that I take from chapter 6. There is a sovereign God. And the only natural, the the only reasonable response to understanding that there is a king over all, the maker of heaven and earth, and he is holy, the only proper response is what David did to make merry, to rejoice, to celebrate, to think that, man, this life is not just about eating a bunch of turkey. It's not just about about making a bunch of money so that someday we can kick back and enjoy it. It's not just about living and dying. There's more to it than that. There is a sovereign God who has eternal kingdom purposes. He's invited you and I to be a part of His plan. Rejoice, celebrate, dance before Him, make merry, have joy. Don't be like Michael looking down your nose at somebody else and disdaining them because they don't have enough fear of man when actually what's needed is more fear of God. And the result really in this rejoicing In this fear of the Lord, in this recognition of His sovereignty, there is unity. The nation of Israel is united in worshiping the one true God, maker of heaven and earth. The only division here is in the person who is really concerned about fear of man. Once everybody's focused on the sovereign God and His holiness and His glory, it's easy to get united in worship and in joy that comes with that. And so now, it's not because David sacrificed an animal every six steps. It's not because David put on that linen ephod. It's not because of any good work that David did that chapter 7 happens. It's all because God is holy. And that, that's made clear because at the beginning of chapter 7, David begins to think about now the reality of man. The kingdom is established. The, the God of Israel is worshipped by all. There's unity that's happening. And he's looking at the beautiful home that he has made of cedar trees provided by the king of Tyre, Hiram. And then he's looking at the tent, the tabernacle, where God's glory dwells, that same tabernacle that led God's people from the Red Sea as they left Egypt as slaves all the way through to the Promised Land, as God led his people on the move, as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of flame by night. David's looking at that tent and and he's looking at his own cedar house and he's thinking, is this right? And so here's how that story unfolds now as we go to God's promises to to David, his covenant with David in the beginning of chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. Cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David wanted to make a house for the Lord, and God flipped that around and said, No, I will make you a house. with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So when you look at the elements of that covenant promise that God makes with David, there are really four key characteristics there. He's promising a house for David. He's promising a seed for David, a family that will increase in generations to come. A kingdom for David. Not that, you know, at the end of his life it will pass to a different family, but that there will be a Davidic king on the throne of Israel and then finally a son of God from David is really what we're hearing at the end of that covenant promise and in that in that covenant in that covenant and then really the end of chapter 7 is David's response remember divine action human response so this is God's action he's not saying you know David you have now earned this covenant you've done your part and now I'm looking at you, David. Yep, you have, you have fully arrived. So now I have to come through and give you the thing that you deserve, this covenant. No, this is all God's action. God. In fact, David is going, I'm going to, with my hands, I'm going to take action and build you a house. And God puts the kibosh on that idea. Oh, no, you're not. I will build a house for you. I'm the initiator. I'm the one who gets things started. I, I do the action You do the reaction. You do the response. You obey. So the reaction part for humans, one part is obeying. Another part is being thankful. That's what we see David doing at the end of chapter 7. He's giving thanks to God. That's his response to God's action. And so in both parts, in God's covenant and David's reaction of thanksgiving, we hear this word forever, repeated six times. So this isn't just, you know, David, if you, then I. David, as long as. This is like a wedding vow. And even beyond that, because we just say, till death do us part. God is saying forever. For all of time, I'm making these covenant promises to you to establish a house, your seed, your kingdom, and that a son of God will come from your descendants. This is the royal grant type of covenant where it's not based on the, the, the subject deserving this or earning it or doing any part of it. It's all the, the sovereign, the king, issuing this covenant decree. This is not just exclusively to the Bible. This is what a royal grant covenant looked like in the ancient Near Eastern world. And these are in line with those covenant promises of God to Abraham that I referenced in Genesis 12, and 15, and elsewhere. So let's, let's look at these covenant promises. Did they, does God keep his promises? Are they true? And as we read this, so there, there's something I'd like, you to, I'd like you to do. This is hard if you are a Christian who's been serving the Lord and you've been reading your Bible. It's hard to not let our New Testament understanding creep into this story, right? And to get pretty excited about that. But but I think it's good, as we're good Old Testament scholars, to look at and study what is God saying to his people, Israel, at this time in their history? What are the promises? What do they mean? So let's look at that first, and then we'll look at the same message in the light of the cross and resurrection. Okay, so both of these are good. I think it's good to start with that Old Testament reading. So as God is saying, to David, I'm going to establish your house, I'm going to give you descendants, I'm going to establish your kingdom, and a son of God will come from you. There's some specific things that he mentions. He says, David, you're not going to build me a house, but your descendant, he says in verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. That's fulfilled in David's son Solomon, who ends up building the temple to worship the Lord. And so really it, it is immediately fulfilled in Solomon, who, who establishes this house of the Lord. There's other things here that when God talks about your descendants, your kingdom, uh, along the way, it says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. In other words, in that Old Testament reading, there will be Davidic kings who will not obey all the laws, commands, and the decrees of the lord our god and you can read about that in the books of kings sadly most of the kings do what is evil in the eyes of the lord and they they allow uh, pagan worship to exist here in the land that god has promised to his people and so god promises and decrees that when there are iniquities in your household there will be punishment from me divine action human response divine response So the divine action is these covenant promises that God makes. The human response is to obey and to walk in that and in the holiness of God and to give thanks to Him. And when there is a violation of that human response, there will be a divine action, either blessing or judgment. And so that's a part of God's work as well and His commitment. So we're going to hold off on that New Testament reading for just a bit. But as, as this story of Israel's history unfolds, and you go through the books of First and Second Kings, the establishment of that temple that Solomon builds, the kingdom is divided. There are kings in the southern tribes of Judah and in the north. Make sure you take some time and, and go through the books of kings in your devotion so you can get a feel of what's to come in Israel's future after the Davidic kingdom uh, is carried out. But at the very end, there's the last chapter of 2 Kings. There's this tragic chapter, chapter 25, when all the, the, the royal artifacts of that temple that Solomon built and brought together, the vessels of gold, And all the ornate ways, uh, the linens and the the things that were used to worship the Almighty God, to build a house for Him where His presence can dwell and where He can be worshipped by His people. Now the, the pagan nation of Babylon comes in and conquers that last Davidic king, Jehoiachin, the king of Judah. And that happens in 597 B.C. The promises that we just read about that God made with David... David's reign ended in about 970 B.C. So this, we don't know exactly the date of chapter 7, but somewhere prior to 970 B.C. So we're talking 373 years later, there have been Davidic kings on the throne of Israel and Judah. And now we get to the end of that story, and this last descendant of David, Jehoiachin, is dragged off to captivity in Babylon. His uncle is installed as the king of in Jerusalem now now a vassal of Babylon King Zedekiah who then ends up being killed as well and and we hear the dismantling of of this house of the Lord the temple of God by the Babylonians and all those things that had been used to worship God are dragged off to Babylon and if, if you are a good Israelite and you've known the promises that god made to david and now you're being led off to captivity in babylon as the smoke of jerusalem is rising behind you you're looking at that israelite next to you going are god's covenant promises true does he keep his word he promised david that he would establish his kingdom forever and now the temple is burning in the background He promised that there would always be a descendant of David on the throne. He promised to make him a house. What's going on? And just when you've almost lost hope, the very last verses of 2 Kings 25 give you, restore that hope. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, this king's still alive. He's a slave. Babylon, but he's still alive in Babylon 37 years later. In the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived, end of second kings. And all of a sudden, there's this little glimmer of hope. Maybe God's word is true. Maybe God does keep his promises. Maybe history even proves the promises of God. And so there are 59 years in Babylonian exile. Midway through that, Jehoiachin is freed from prison. He's now given a place of honor, allowed to eat with the Babylonian king. God raises up and tears down empires. And at the end of the story, there's Cyrus, the king of Persia, who in 538 B.C. frees the Israelites and allows them to return to the land of Judah and to rebuild the, the temple, and to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And there's hope that God's covenant promises to David are true. So that's an Old Testament reading of Deuteronomy 7. What about for us New Testament believers? We know about Jesus and His death and His resurrection, His faithful life and death and resurrection. What deeper meaning do we no, as we go back now and read our Old Testament, and it's filled up with meaning because of Jesus. Well, first of all, let's just briefly, the New Testament context, all you got to do is read, look at the very first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And you're going to get a glimpse of something that's going to carry on out throughout your New Testament. Look at the very first verse of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What's this New Testament about? It's in line with these covenant promises that our sovereign, faithful, glorious King made with David and he keeps his promises. His promises are true. And so this is a book about the the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now that word is not Jesus' last name. That means king. That means Messiah. That means anointed one. This is the book of the genealogy of King Jesus, the son of David, who is the son of Abraham. And then that genealogy, it really connects those three. It it goes through the generations uh, between Abraham and David, 14 generations, from David to Babylon, 14 generations, and from Babylon to The Messiah, the Christ, the King, Jesus, 14 generations. Matthew's intention is to say, pay attention. Those of you who know 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's being fulfilled now. Get ready. There is a Davidic king whose kingdom will never end. He is the forever king. You paying attention? Are you you getting it? And so God is is in Jesus fulfilling his promises to David. Not just to Israel, but for all of God's people, for all of time. And, and you'll see that throughout uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew, even there in, in chapter 1 as as the angel appears to David in verse 20 and, and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Again, that explicit connection between David and the throne of... Uh, Jesus and the throne of David. God's promises are true. When you go back now and you read the covenant promises that God makes with David, promises to establish a kingdom, to build a house for his name, descendants. Even the reference to iniquity now when you look at that it says in verse 14 of the the chapter we've been studying together second samuel chapter 7 verse 14 i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son does that sound like jesus with god the father absolutely when he commits iniquity we know that jesus is without sin So then, you know, does this apply to Jesus? What's a New Testament reading of that verse? When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. That sounds like Jesus' crucifixion, the second part of that, not the iniquity part. But this is a good picture of the complexity of the atonement. What happens as Jesus goes to the cross and dies in our place? Legally, what happens? Well, if there is sin, there is punishment for sin. Otherwise, God is not just. So there is a just God who pays to each of us what we deserve, which is, you know, the the wages of sin is death. But then there's a substitute that goes in our place and says, you know what, you're about to declare this person guilty. I will take the guilt upon myself. And Jesus takes our sins upon himself. He bears our sins in his body on the tree that we being dead to sin might live to righteousness. That's why we're going to celebrate communion today. It's not that Jesus committed iniquity, and yet it's as if he did. So the, the, the beauty of sanctification, justification, it's that God looks at you, and he says because of what Jesus did, it's just as if you never sinned. That's a good way to remember what justification means. Just as if you never sinned. But the opposite is, is what Jesus takes on himself. It's that on the cross, God looks at Jesus and says, it's just as if you committed all the sins for every man, woman, and child who's ever lived. And because of that, Jesus is able to pay the penalty for those sins, to take it upon himself to say, by my stripes you are healed. And so even in this verse in 2 Samuel, with our New Testament reading in light of the cross and resurrection, we're seeing God making eternal promises that apply to you and I today. Does God keep his promises? Absolutely. When he promises you forgiveness of sin through his son, will he keep that promise? Absolutely. When he says, though your sins are red as crimson, they will be made white as snow, does he keep that? Yeah. Does he forget your sin? and throw it as far as the east is from the west. Mm -hmm. And the the enemy will come, and he'll try to tantalize us with that man-made religion that says, oh, no, no, it's human action, and then divine response. I've got to do X, Y, and Z to make God happy. And then he'll look at me and go, yeah, you know what? You, You have arrived. In your own strength, in your own effort, you are good enough now. I will bless you. I will have to follow through and give you promises. That's a man-made view, and instead, we serve the God who initiates, the God who pursues us, the God who takes our sins upon himself, the God who looks at us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, and he loves us. And so today, I hope you hear that truth, that God keeps his word, his promises are true and forever, and he looks at you, and today, maybe you, you do not know Jesus as your Savior, And today, he is drawing you to himself. And he's pursuing you. And he's saying, I came to die for you and to cleanse you. Stop trying in your effort. You'll never measure up to my glorious standard of holiness. But I've come that you may live. I've come to give you life. And today's that day to rejoice and to celebrate and to dance before him and to make merry before the Lord. As you get a glimpse of his sovereignty and his grace and his mercy and his plan for you, And you get on board with what he's already done. You say, Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me. And now that human response part. I surrender to you. I confess my sins to you. I obey you. I give thanks to you. That's our response to the good news. And as we work out... That side of it, in in walking in holiness with him, he continues to bless us, to guide us, to equip us by his spirit, to cleanse us, to renew us, to make us look more like Jesus each day. Today we're going to give thanks as David did at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 7. The worship team is going to come up. We're going to make this a time to celebrate. If you need to dance before the Lord, go for it. And we won't judge you for your lack of fear of man. And if you want to give thanks to him and make merry before him, this is a time to celebrate and rejoice for what God has done. You don't need to be a member of our church to join in communion with us. If you are a member of the house of the Lord, if you are a son or daughter of King Jesus, if you are a Christian, we invite you to worship with us. Maybe you're here visiting family, and we're glad to have you here with us today to, to worship. If today you're still considering the claims of the gospel, and you're saying, you know, I, I need to think about this some more. Am I willing to surrender to Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Then today is not the day for you to take communion. You, you continue to wait and continue to, to ask and to seek, and we'd love to have a chance to talk to you some more about making that decision to react to God's leading and drawing you to himself. But for everyone else, let's celebrate, let's give thanks. So the communion tables are by each of the doors, and as we worship, you can go ahead and make your way to those tables, take the bread and the cup, and then we'll come back to our seats and we'll all give thanks together in just a moment.